Welcome, everyone, to A Reason for Hope. This is Adrian Van Vactor speaking to you right now from Tucson, Arizona at Calvary Christian Fellowship of Tucson. We do a weekday 5 to 6 p.m. Bible Answer Program, and it's live, so you can join us and ask questions about the Bible, the Christian worldview. Uh, maybe there was a specific passage in Scripture that you wanted to kind of get a better understanding of, or can we rely on the historicity and the preservation of the Bible? Uh, does God exist? All kinds of questions that we try to tackle here on the program. Uh, we've been doing this program since 2001. It was started off as a <clears throat> live call-in radio show, and uh, through various transformations, now it's become a live stream, and uh, we really want to encourage you to join us. We are streaming this live on multiple platforms. You can check us out on Facebook, and uh, if you have a Facebook account, you can actually not only watch, but you can engage and ask questions. So you can visit us at our Facebook page at CCF Tucson. We also live stream to YouTube. And if you do catch us on these platforms, we would really appreciate it if you would subscribe and you know and hit that notification bell. We stream all our services and special events, as including this program, uh, to YouTube and Facebook. So if you have a chance to do that, like and share and all that good stuff, we'd really appreciate it because it helps us uh, reach more people with the gospel. And uh, of course, um, <clears throat> if you do decide to go to YouTube instead of Facebook, that's our handle there. And uh, our senior pastor, Scott Richards, if you want to follow him on Twitter, we'd encourage you to do so. Uh, you can also ask your questions there. Obviously, we're not streaming to Twitter, but if you want to follow and um, and actually ask a question there, we will tackle that question. His handle on Twitter is at, Scar at Scott R4H. That's at Scott R4H on Twitter. You can also watch us on our website. And, and of course, it's live. And you can also, if you go to that uh, uh, tab there and hit watch live, you can actually engage and ask questions right on our website. So you don't even have to have a social media account or anything. And, of course, uh, if you want to engage with us uh, you know, more anonymously, you can do so by email at questionsforhope at gmail.com. We also have a Bible app, and this app uh, has all our uh, archive sermons and our current messages, as well as special events, our calendar. Uh, there's also a message side to it where you can join a prayer group or start a, a, a like an online messaging group. Let's say you're part of a, a Bible study and you want to invite a bunch of people to get messages uh, through that app, you can do so. And uh, you can download the app, of course, in the Apple iTunes or the Google Play Store. And we also live stream to Roku and Amazon uh, Fire TV or Fire Stick or whatever that is uh, called. So you can constantly engage with us in multiple ways. In studio with us today is uh, Pastor Sean Richards and Pastor Peter Martin. Gentlemen, are you ready? <laughs> oh, I'm ready. <laughs> well, before we take your questions, we always start off the program with a, a topic that uh, is going to be addressed today. But before we even do that, we always like to take a moment to pray and ask the Lord to be with us so that uh, we're not uh, tackling difficult issues of our own accord, but in league with Him and His will and His love for all humanity. So, Peter, accord. would you... Do the pleasure. <laughs> I would. <laughs> uh, Father, we love you so much. We're grateful for all the wonderful things that you do in our lives. Um, I do pray for this session, this program, 
that me and Sean and Adrian be able to approach these questions in a way that honors your word and truth, the Lord, in a way that uh, glorifies you and draws people closer to you. I do pray that those listening uh, would be able to uh, be blessed by the things spoken here. God, it would uh, make them more desirous for your word to, to draw closer to you as their, as their heavenly father, as well as to be more ready to engage with the issues surrounding them and their culture and everything else. In your name, amen. That is true. Amen. So uh, today's topic, uh, and this is a really good area because, you know, this doesn't really pertain to just the Christian faith. It really just has to deal with anyone of any kind of faith, unless you're a naturalist, will ponder this question, and that's the question of miracles. What precisely about miracles is today's question going to start off with? Well, essentially, it's the assumption that since God can do anything, that means he will do anything. If I can somehow attribute this to God or blame God for this, he has the power, so obviously he would have the means and the motive as well. Well, means being the power, of course, but the idea that since we believe God can do all things, which, spoiler alert, we don't, but also that since God could do anything, if someone claims that God did something that isn't found in his word, can we use that aura of ambiguity, that uh, basically gap in knowledge, that because, you know, after all, Jesus did many other things that weren't written, and if all the works of Jesus were written that should have been written, there wouldn't be enough trees to make enough paper, all the libraries in the world, that's how the Gospel of John ends, could have been written, but these things are written that you may believe. Well, how do we know? How do we know, arguing from ignorance, of course, that God could also have done other things than what's given to us in his word? And this, of course, is based on an assumption that we aren't given a standard to know what God will and won't do, not a matter of could he, but would he, in the specific setting we find ourselves in. And that, of course, is the church age. We, as Christians, of course, believe that the Holy Spirit, God himself, is empowering us as he sees fit to give gifts according to whom he wills and when he wills it. But what's interesting about this as well is that in any religious circle, a conscious and a, uh, I guess, involved deity is going to have the ability to do things. Even pagans believe that. And the question is, of course, if I'm going to blame God for this, for better or for worse, does it line up with his nature? Does it line up with his word? And how do we test that? Hmm. Uh, Nabil Qureshi in his book, uh, No God But One, Seeking Allah and Finding Jesus, kind of built on this when he was giving the example of a blind man who had oil poured on him by accident, then suddenly he can see. The temptation for a lot of us is to say, oh, that's a miracle, right? And wisely, he said, no. That would be certainly strange. That could have been coincidental. That could even have been an example of providence, that God was acting in an indirect way in the sense that he's sovereign and can cause his reign to fall on the just and the unjust. But we as Christians won't jump to superstition and say, since I can't come up with an immediate explanation for this, I'm just going to blame God. There could be another explanation. But if on the other hand, and this is from his book, copyright acknowledged, <laughs> uh, there was another situation he presented where a man 
was contacted by a family that he knew, one of his Christian neighbors, and said, you know, we were praying over dinner and the Lord just really laid it on his heart that he wants to pray for you, that he wants to heal you, that there's a specific motive and purpose in mind for this, that the same material, the oil, would be anointed on his eyes in accordance with the book of James chapter 5, and then they would pray for him with the intention of saying, God, you heal this man so that your name is glorified, in again accordance with Mark 16, and then he was healed. Would then we say that is a miracle? And the answer would be yes. If we say, well, someone came to me with a testimony, said that God did something, great. How do we know that? Because anyone can put those words in that order. What we want to do is not be not just on the hyper-skeptical side and say, God can't do anything, but also be on the gullible side and say, God has done everything that someone could even remotely blame him for. And this, of course, keeps us from not only a lot of deception outside the church, but within it as well. So when people are coming to us with testimonies saying, God did this, and this isn't something that's spelled out in Scripture, as something God would do in this specific setting, we exercise healthy skepticism. And of course, there's more than one way to go about this, but the primary way is, of course, going to be through his word. We tend to prefer that as our source of authority on these matters on the broadcast. But when it also comes to not just the consideration of miracles, but also the priority in miracles, People, well-intended though may, they may be, and my father talked about this yesterday in the Jesus Revolution, want to get people excited about God, have the sort of personality that not only expects God to work, but is eager to see him work in new and greater ways in their life every single day. We don't condemn that, but when they do it at the expense of truth, it's no more a stumbling block than if we, as people who would emphasize truth, say, you know, these other books have truths in them too. Why don't we take our time that we could be spending in God's Word on Sunday and just reflect a bit on uh, Plato's Republic and so forth? That would be, of course, not only a waste of time, but a disservice to our congregation. So these are the things that we want to keep in mind. And of course, I don't want to set up the (laughs) narrative for you, Peter. I'll let you share what the Lord's laying on your heart. But the first and most important place that I go to whenever anyone says anything with God as the secondary subject, God did this. 1 Corinthians chapter 12 is the first and most important place to start. You can read the whole chapter on your own time, but the point of emphasis in the first eight verses are first starting with salvation. If someone's a genuine teacher of God, filled with the Holy Spirit, exercising what we call the gift of prophecy, not speaking of the future, but just the Spirit speaking through them. He's not going to call Jesus accursed. And if someone's genuinely saved, that's also a work of the Holy Spirit. Then it goes on to note there are a lot of gifts, but the same source, the same focus, the same purpose, the same driving, not force, but the same person who sees all these things through to his intended will. He mentions a list prophecies, healings, tongues, interpretations of tongues, even administrations and hospitality. But we need to be sensitive to these sort of things because in a day and age where truth is kind of secondary to clicks and subscriber counts, you get a lot of attention at the expense of truth. 
we would rather be faithful with what God actually has given us rather than be reactionary when someone maybe can't attribute motive, but maybe trying to get more attention than to get an actual revelation from God out. If God's going to do it, it's going to be in line with his nature. When God does it, it's going to be in the pattern he's laid down for us in his word. And most importantly, as these things are taking place, he expects us, a la 1 Thessalonians 5, 19 through 21, to test those things and hold fast to what is good. Now, I pretty much spoken my piece on this. Peter, do you have anything in regards to what the uh, screen says there? Will God do any miracle? Uh, yeah, so <clears throat> quickly, I think it's important that we define what a miracle is. Uh, I think a lot of people in our culture believe that a miracle is either A, a suspension of the laws of physics, which we'll talk more about in a second, or B, something that's just astronomically improbable, right? You know, like something that has a million one odds, but it happens anyway. You know, like the story that you shared, Sean, of someone spilling oil on their face and then miraculously getting healed from blindness. That's a miracle. Well, no, no, it's just highly improbable. It's something that could happen, but it's something that's very unlikely to happen. Or someone winning the lottery or someone getting struck by, I, I, uh, my dad knew someone who got struck by lightning and it hit, fixed his back. You know, that's, uh, that's actually not the finger of God touching him, right? That is, that is a bolt of lightning. It just had an improbable effect on his spinal alignment. So uh, when we're talking about a miracle, we're not talking about the suspension of the laws of physics, and we're not talking about an improbable uh, event. What we're talking about is God accessing his creation directly. So the majority of the ways that God interacts with his creation is through the laws that he's given to govern the creation. So a good example that I like to give is it's like a computer designer, right? So if a software engineer writes a particular program, that program functions off a of code. So if I were to play Tetris or if I were to play uh, Pong or any of those simple Atari games, there's a code and there's parameters of how things act within the game. And it doesn't take any intervention from the engineer to make those things happen. It's not like every single time you boot up your computer and you're playing a game, the programmers are on all the time making everything directly happen. They have created rules within the game, and those rules govern the activity that you see occur within the game, right? That's the explanation for everything that is happening. So in one way, Sean, you are correct, everything that happens within this universe is caused by God, because God's the one who set up the universe and the rules that govern it. But if a computer engineer wanted to, or if someone was savvy enough to hack the program, they can add in code to that given program and alter the rules a little bit, right? So, uh, you know, I used to play a lot of Halo online and, and we would say that, we'd be like, ah, oh, dude's hacking. You know, what, what we meant is that he's changed the rules of the game to favor him in some particular way. And it's usually mm -hmm. very obvious. Now, you usually just want to accuse anyone who's beating you of that, oh, he's <laughs> hacking, you know, but yeah. you, you gotta be, you gotta be a little bit, you know, actually stringent, especially if you're gonna, uh, publicly accuse that person. Everybody yeah. has an aimbot, right? Right, that's right. You know, it's like maybe he doesn't have aimbot. Maybe he's just better than you. You know, you have to accept it. So you have to evaluate it. Is it is it reasonable that this person is just that good, or is it obvious that he's you know walking through walls and flying and doing all these other things that are just impossible? So uh, during the time of Jesus' ministry, when he's acting, when he's performing miracles. Uh, it's not as though, again, people are just coming up to Jesus and they're randomly experiencing things. Jesus is calling his shots, right? He is specifically touching people. He is specifically healing maladies that they are bringing to him. 
Uh, he's walking on water. He's transmuting matter from water to wine, right? He's doing all these things, but it's it's obvious that he's doing it. These aren't improbable things. This isn't magic, which I'll pass it to you in a second. Uh, it's, it's not magic. It is God himself who has written the code of the universe, who has created everything ex nihilo from nothing, and he is now actually interacting with his creation directly. He's not allowing it to just run on its natural code. He is directly performing an action. So how do we test it? Well, it's the same way that you test if anyone performs an action, right? So as I pick this mug up, for those of you guys who are listening, you just have to picture me holding a mug, a beautiful black mug. Uh, as I pick this mug up and you see it hovering within the screen, you'd have to ask, what is causing that? Right? Who is causing the mug to, add, to, to move in the direction that it is? And you would obviously look at my hand and you would evaluate, oh, well, it's not God. You know, it's not, it's not floating. It's not doing anything. Right? Sean's not moving it with his fingers and telepathy. It's, it's clearly <laughs> Peter. He is clearly moving it because you can trace the behavior of the mug to the autonomous agent. That's the idea. So I have to be able to, to trace directly what happened to a particular agent that is acting upon that thing, uh, whether it's just natural effect or whether it's the actual causes of God. So you have to evaluate things and you have to rationalize them. Now, as you said, Sean, we're in a very scary time where since information is so accessible to us, the idea of deception is at an all-time high. And you know, now with things like deep fakes and uh, different technology, AI technology, the ability to deceive people has in some ways never been higher. But you know, sitting in the studio with a magician, I think it is funny that we are talking to someone who makes his living by pretending to bend the laws of physics. And you also go across the world where people are deceived in droves, that there are miraculous things occurring that they are causing. So, Adrian, you know, when you think about the topic of miracles, how do you evaluate something that's happening? <clears throat> well, the evaluation is different. I, I <clears throat> do appreciate your definition when God directly intervenes. And the only thing that I have to challenge non-believers about when they experience phenomena that they think is supernatural mm. is that <clears throat> only God can do that. <laughs> yeah. Only God can pause or tamper with the laws of physics because he's the author of them. Right. Uh, but that being aside, <clears throat> typically, we if we have a miracle claim, we approach it very much like a magician would. Yeah. If you're doing something, I'm going to look for a technique. Right. Because <clears throat> I don't have to be a professional magician to know whether a miracle is not a miracle. Because then you just look at the message. Hmm. If, if the message does not correspond to God's Word, then I can already assume that it's not an act of supernatural activity. It's not a miracle. Right. Uh, God doesn't mess with people. He doesn't do he, practical jokes, even though he could. He, he could. <laughs> he and he might, I mean, some interpret uh, in the last days where he does the powerful delusion. Some suggest that God will break the laws of physics on behalf of the Antichrist mm -hmm. to uh, bring about that deception. Of course, that's just a, a textual debate. Yeah. Uh, obviously, God could, but it, it does... It is somewhat contrary to his nature to do that like on a regular basis. Right. Yeah. right. <laughs> and so <clears throat> so we can already assume that if someone is uh, contradicting God's word in their worldview, if they're a, like a, a false religion or a false belief system, <clears throat> we can already discern and know it's not a miracle. I don't know how they're doing it, right. but it's not real. Right. Uh, now, if if you can't know that message, if you don't know, you just hear stories, 
then of course, or you're, you're experiencing a phenomenon, then we would approach it just like you would testing any other uh, psychic or guru or uh, you know magic man. <clears throat> we would look for a technique, and so that's where the the engineering slash deceptive mind comes into play. Uh, for example, when I <clears throat> went to South Africa, I wanted to see if the Sangoma, uh, what kind of presentation they utilized in order to convince people that they were able to lift curses. So if someone experienced, uh, let's say, stress in their marriage, or <clears throat> they had struggles in school, or maybe they were getting like really rough relationship with their boss and they were worried about getting fired, they would go to the witch doctor. And the witch doctor says, oh, someone put a curse on you. Uh, take this, say these things, and the curse will be removed and you'll improve your marriage and so on and so forth. That's not miraculous or supernatural, but <clears throat> it's funny how people buy into those things and right. they kind of rule the culture, these sangoma, uh, these witch doctors. Well, they also claim to be able to heal that way. Not only that, but they, they claim to be able to detect your malady, your sickness. And so I, would, I went to one and I said, okay, well, I've got three things wrong with me. Um, I'm an illusionist and I'm investigating miracles. I want to know if supernatural things really occur around the world. And so I'm here to see if you can do something that defies the laws of science and nature. So I have, and I said, are you okay with that? And he's like, sure. And uh, I said, I have three things wrong with me. Can you tell me what they are? <laughs> and he looked into him, he looked at my reflection in a mirror. And then he had like coffee grounds. And he had this little flask that he said his ancestral spirits dwell indwelled. So he would listen to it, and then he would do this weird. Space. Yeah, <laughs> he would do this uh, thing with his jaw, where he would like gyrate it back and forth, and and he'd make his ears move really strangely, like all these muscle movements, like he was like trying to get messages from the the underworld or the afterlife or the spirit world. And uh, he gave me a bunch of predictions. And at this point, I already knew because of who he is that it was not going to be supernatural. Not that it's a bias. It's years and years of studying and realizing that, that we don't live in a supernatural universe that's always happening, meaning it's normal for right. to see supernatural phenomena. So I have good grounds for being skeptical. Right, which would erase the importance of miracles, right? If supernatural yeah. things happen all the time and the universe isn't on fixed rules, then we wouldn't notice miracles when they happen. The miracle would be the normal way of things. Right, yeah. And so when, when we would do that, um, we would just apply the same test we would to like a psychic. Okay, well, I know you're not really psychic. And how do I know that? Because God's word tells me that. So we always, for, for those of us who are uh, Christians, we always go back to God's word. For those who are atheists, they go back to naturalism. Right. So they'll always use naturalism. Well, I know miracles aren't possible because miracles are not possible. Right. And they even approach Christianity that way. But we don't. We say, well, no, miracles are possible because God is real. And God does intervene in human history, and he has, and we have proof of that. But how do we know that not other, thing, other things can't do that? Or how do we know that God's not doing that through other religions? So maybe God is doing it through Hindus and Buddhists and, and Muslims and so on and so forth. Is there a way to test it, even if the message doesn't correspond to Scripture? And yeah, we could easily apply those tests. People do the kinds of things <clears throat> that Jesus did not do. They do cold readings, they rely on uh, superstitious fears, they rely on hearsay, they rely on sleight of hand even, 
Uh, and so, um, in our investigation as magicians, we're in a unique position because we already have the background of how to create deceptive illusions and sleight of hand and psychological trickery. We know how to do that. So it doesn't take long for me to see someone and go and identify exactly what's being done at the moment. Uh, clearly, he's using cold reading because he doesn't know me, and he's basically using educated guesses to figure out what he thinks might be wrong with me. He was wrong on all of them, mm. and one was one was right in front of him. <laughs> I was like showing him like the scarring of my I had this condition on my hands. It was like really bad. I was, mm. it was really bad. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm like putting my arm out of my knee going, I have this really bad issue with my skin right now, and he yeah. didn't even notice. Yeah. And then I said, I lost someone in my family. Can you tell me who, who it is? And he listened. He did all his things. He had these little bones that he would throw down, and he would look at him and look at me in the mirror and listen to his flask, shake his face around, and, and he just looked at him, and he goes, I can't tell you. And I said, now you do realize that you, since you predicted nothing, I really can't pay you. <laughs> and he goes, I understand. It's okay. <laughs> he let me go. <laughs> just don't expose me, please. You know? <laughs> so, you know, the, the challenge is for the Christian and the subject of miracles is what happens when someone does claim they're a Christian. Mm-hmm. It's easy to say, okay, well, the occult, God's not going to do miracles through them, okay? And, and then as an illusionist and as a Christian, I can see, well, God is the author of miracles and the only one who does, performs the miracles. So <clears throat> what happens when a Christian... Um, preacher or televangelist claims to be doing miracles when the message seems to be in line with Christianity. Hmm. And that's, I think, one of the big questions that we tackled at one point in our ministry is, you know, that we, in fact, this book here, um, written by uh, Richard Mayhew, uh, I was with Andre Cole during our tour while he was writing a chapter for this book. And uh, if you don't mind, I'll just read a real quick quote. Yeah. I thought this was really interesting. <clears throat> he first shares in this chapter of his conversion experience and how it was the miracles of Jesus that brought him to faith because he could not conceive. He's a genius inventor. I mean, he's the one that invented how to make the Statue of Liberty disappear for David Copperfield. He's the mm-hmm. one that uh, invented some of the greatest illusions of all time. Wow. So he's a genius when it comes to creating deceptive illusions, but he could not figure out how Jesus did the miracles, and that's what led him to faith. Hmm. Well, when it comes to certain ministries who uh, re- whose ministries revolve around the subject of miracles, specifically healings, uh, he, he makes a really interesting point here, and I thought I'd share it. Uh, he goes, the great faith healing act. All of us, whether Christian or not, have a curiosity and desire to see and experience the supernatural. We want to believe that what we are seeing is real, and therefore we let down our guard when it comes to spiritual discernment. The fact is that when anything, no matter how ridiculous or incredible it may be, is presented in a serious and sacred manner in an atmosphere where honesty is taken for granted, even the most intelligent and spiritually discerning person can be taken in by a clever sleight-of-hand demonstration of trickery and deception. It's <clears throat> a good quote. Yeah, it's one of my favorites. <laughs> yeah. That's the reference. Well, we got some questions going, so yeah. let us know if that helps. Uh, <clears throat> uh, Gil wanted to follow up. He says, uh, Peter and Sean, uh, why doesn't God, 
following up on this subject of miracles, uh, why doesn't God heal everyone, and why did the miracle stop after Acts? Ooh, boy. Um, <laughs> That's a good I, question, yeah. So I guess infrequence and uh, cessationism. That's a fun one. Uh, I'll start with uh, miracles stop after Acts. When we ask ourselves how often do miracles happen today, and I don't mean just you know revival tent shenanigans, I mean legitimate miracles. Uh, sorry for those of you out there who attend those things and also repent. The interesting thing <clears throat> is when people read the book of Acts, they tend to think, okay, page three, miracle, page four and a half, another miracle, page five, another miracle. They don't realize that Luke is gathering this narrative over a span of around 32 years. And in the entirety of the book of Acts, you can check my math on this, but I think the last time I went through it, we're currently going through it on Sundays, but grand total of the number of miracles in Acts might have been just over a dozen, maybe 15 or 16. I tend to think 16 because half of 32, you get the point. But going from Jesus' resurrection in uh, around maybe 30, 33 AD to uh, the Apostle Paul on his way to stand his first trial before Emperor Nero. We know when Nero was around, and we know around the time that Jesus would have been executed during Passover. So that 30-year span and 16 miracles split and spread out, specifically in line with what we were talking about, the verification of the apostles' word, that they were only doing these miracles because God wanted to verify something. They needed to be taken seriously, just like the standards of the Law of Moses. If we go mathematically on this, we average about one miracle every other year, which compared to the legitimate miracles that we would hear about today, sounds about right. As far as the frequency is concerned, it's not really relevant to the topic because even in the Bible, they were very infrequent, and that's what we just talked about, the idea that sorry, Immanuel Kant, but the fact that something is rare doesn't mean it's not believable. It means that's more worth paying attention to if it doesn't happen as often. Something new has been introduced here. But if, on the other hand, why did the miracle stop after Acts? Well, as far as them being written in Scripture, it's because there's no part three to Acts. You can consider, you know, Paul's letters, maybe even the book of Hebrews, as a follow-up. But when it comes to what we're told and what God was doing, those are two very different things. We're not told everything that God's doing. We're told this for a specific reason. So be careful when we ask, you know, oh, the Bible stopped, I guess God stopped. No, it's, he, he's been involved in the world today, but he has a specific reason when and why he does those things. But I guess that's an interesting thing. There's a reason why God does those things, but why doesn't he do them my way? I see someone who's sick, and I want them to get healed. Why doesn't God agree with me? Yeah, I mean, I think we all have that question. Right. I mean, there, there are many miracles that seem odd that God doesn't perform them. Um, I can't remember. It's a very famous kind of atheist thing. I can't remember specifically who's talking about it. But, you know, there was this famous atheist that would go around and he'd say, like, well, if God is real, you know, let him move this piece of chalk, you know, and he would put it out and it will be like, I'll give God a minute, you know, and see and see if he'll do it. And, you know, when I first heard that challenge, it did stumbled me a little bit. I was like, why wouldn't God move it? I mean, that would be clear evidence. Like everyone in the audience would repent. It would be so obvious to everybody around. Why wouldn't God do that? Or, you know, if you see 
someone who's sick and dying and you're praying over them sincerely. Like, why wouldn't God heal this person? Especially when you're dealing with a child who's sick. And, you know, I've been in hospitals where parents have been grieving over their children who are sick with just these terrible, terrible illnesses threatening their lives. And as a parent, like, how could you conceive of a God who loves who isn't going to perform a miracle like that? Like, why wouldn't God do that? And it's hard for us to wrap our minds around it. And I think that the person who helped me understand the answer to that the best was a guy named Dinesh D'Souza, a famous apologist, and uh, he's more of a political commentator at this point in his life. But uh, D'Souza was talking about miracles and why God may or may not do the things that he does and why God would allow for suffering and evil when he has the power to dispense of it. And he said, you know, there are theological reasons that I could give you of what can come about through pain and suffering, why God would allow pain and suffering. You go through Romans 8 and see that God allows for pain and suffering as a sign that he is the absent God, right? That he is the hidden God, that he has separated himself to an extent from his created order because of our rebellion against him in the Garden of Eden. And this pain and suffering that exists in the creation is a result of that. There's also uh, reasons as to what kind of universe we're in. We're in a very harsh universe. We're in one that we will die, and we're going to face opposition from the enemy. So God wouldn't do us any favors by making our lives easier in that sense, by removing suffering. So there are theological reasons as to why God probably doesn't alleviate these things. But he said, honestly, none of these really matter. He says, if we're dealing with a problem that we can't find the solution to, that doesn't automatically mean that there is no solution. It just might mean that we're not smart enough to understand it. And that answer, for whatever reason, really helped me. It it humbled me, and it made me realize just because I can't explain why God wouldn't do something, in my own human knowledge, I can't explain why God wouldn't do something, doesn't mean he doesn't have a reason, and that reason being infinitely greater than my ignorance. Uh, And then I was reading in a fantasy book a a story. I I quote this often because I I think it's such a fascinating story. So there's this fantasy book where you have a prophet who lives in a town, and he essentially starts a civil war, and it ends up killing thousands of people. And someone comes later on, and he's basically immortal. Someone comes hundreds of years later, and they say, like, you know, how could you do this thing? because you have perfect knowledge, you knew what would happen when you told this person this piece of gossip, and you knew it was going to start a civil war, and you knew all these people would die, and you knew all these kids would get murdered, all because of your stupidity. Why would you do it? And he said, yeah, you're right. A lot of kids died. He's like, but what if I told you that one of the kids that died would have eventually risen to be a man, and he would have started a war that would have killed everybody on this continent? Would you think it was worth it then? And they paused for a second, and he said, maybe you just got to believe that I saw something that you didn't, right? And that's, that's kind of where it ends. And I've always liked that because it is an explanation. Like, God isn't just balancing your personal <laughs> preference or pleasure. God is balancing the providence of all of creation. And there are decisions that he has to make that might infringe on your prosperity in serious ways. I'm not making light of it. It might infringe on your prosperity in very serious ways, But it doesn't mean he doesn't have a grand reason as to why he would do that. Unfortunately, I think a lot of people read Romans 8, where it says that uh, God intends everything for the purpose of good to those who love him and are called according to his purpose. And they think that, like, if suffering happens to me, it's because God has something better for me around the corner. So if I get divorced from my wife, 
God has a better wife. If I lose this job, God's got a better job. If I get sick, it's because God wants to use the sickness to make my life better. Uh, you know, that, that tends to be true sometimes, but oftentimes some tragedy happens to you and it kills you, right? So it doesn't benefit you in any physical way, right? But you got to remember, God's not just thinking about your life. He's thinking about the lives of the entire world. He has a, a plan that is at work of sal- salvation for the entire world. So he has to balance those things. And, you know, if you want uh, the, the easiest example of when God in every human reason possible of a miracle that everyone would assume God would perform, even the enemies of Jesus thought that he would perform it, would be the, sa- the salvation of Jesus when he was on the cross. All the disciples could not think of a reason as to why Jesus would go to the cross. They were dumbfounded by it. Uh, even the enemies of Jesus said, well, if you're really the son of God, get off that cross. You know, what's the insinuation? If you really are who you were saying you are, there is no possible reason I could think of as to why God would let you die. And then right? they started to quote Psalm 22, and then they got quiet. Yeah, so Jesus, <laughs> even though they didn't understand a reason as to why Jesus would allow himself to be crucified or why the father would allow that to happen to his son, there was a reason, and it confounded everybody, right? It was, as Paul says later on, the cross is foolishness to the world because they can't think of a reason as to why God would let it happen, but it's the wisdom of God. So, again, when it comes to healing, I, I take that very seriously because we are talking about real people that are suffering and dying as a result of this fallen world. But we have to take a little bit of a pill of humility and say, just because I can't think of a reason why God wouldn't do this doesn't mean God should. It might mean that God has something bigger that he's thinking of, and I need to cloak myself in humility and mm-hmm. allow God to be God. And that's the toughest thing to do in the face of suffering. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we what don't. Yeah, you know, we don't always ask why is this happening. We say often, "What? What can I do in the midst of this?" Mm. One of the chapters in that book, the Healing Promise that I was describing, <clears throat> talks about James five. He said the name of the chapter is, is James five for me. Mm. Uh, that's a. I mean, it's kind of along the same question. How do you respond to? How do you think along these lines in light of that passage about the anointing of oil and that they will recover? Is that describing supernatural, miraculous healing, or was there another? Is there something we don't understand about the use of oil and or the specific kind of oil? Or yeah, it, it it gets fun. I think the best way to approach that is first of all, James five, like anything else in Scripture, is applied in so far as it lines up with the author's intent. If that passage was written, then that is for our admonition and exhortation and comfort. But if on the other hand, I'd say, so in all situations and in all circumstances, if I follow this to the letter, uh, my mom, for instance, uh, they followed through on James 5 when she was having a issue with her neck, basically, that would have killed her if the, notice this, medical professionals and also the absence of our insurance companies. But anyway, uh, the medical intervention that was done to save her life hadn't gone through. And what was interesting is that we followed through on James 5, and for some reason, what was going on with her neck didn't automatically recover. But what is the purpose of prayer? And I think that's another key issue. When we're asking what was the flow of that point in James 5, he gives an Old Testament illustration of Elijah praying for three and a half years, and it didn't rain. Now, that's hardly the sort of a prayer request that we would bring 
now uh, towards our nation, but there was a specific reason, the corruption of Ahaz, Ahab excuse me, and Jezebel, where that was something Elijah was praying for God to do. Why? Because it was God's idea, not just what to do, but how to do it. Israel would be judged through the withholding of water. So if you come to someone, well, you come to God, but you bring someone before God in prayer, we oftentimes confuse prayer's purpose as, I'm going to get a miracle this way. I'm going to get what I ask. When the entire witness of Scripture, every time someone's praying, most prominently our Lord, wasn't to get what he wanted done, it was to align his will with the Father. So in that set of circumstances, in James 5 specific, the fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much, it was in the context of what, and it was followed up by what? Confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. Well, you know, moral compromises can probably result in physical maladies, but it doesn't always mean it's a physical issue. It could be a mental, a social, a historical one, I don't know. But the interesting thing is it mentions healing in the context of what? sanctification, growing closer to Jesus, God's real purpose for our lives, the eternal Mm -hmm. purpose. So taking, of course, the whole chapter in its flow, and I'm sure he does a great job outlining the same point with a few stuttering. The point I would make an emphasis to that is make sure you read the whole chapter, the whole passage, and define those terms the Mm -hmm. way the book and the books around it also use that term. I don't come to God with prayer like a to-do list with Santa Claus. I come to God saying, this is where my heart's at, but I'd rather be where your heart's at because what you're gonna, what you want to do is going to get done. I'd rather set myself up for success and say, what do you want in this situation? Hmm. Now note, in prayer for my mother or later my father and his cancer diagnosis, my prayers weren't a cheerful, God, if my parents are going to die, then I ask that you would give me the heart to celebrate this and glorify you. No, I was just... This is where I'm at. I'm broken. I'm grieving. I don't like watching this, but give them as much patience and peace and a trust for you as I need in you right now. You can testify to this. You, Well, the point being made is that when we're talking about these issues, clarify those small assumptions. The Mm. purpose of prayer is what I want. The purpose of miracles is to appease me. And why I advertised that initial question with Peter why doesn't God do the miracles that I want? Mm-hmm. That's the problem. <laughs> yeah, I, as an illusionist, <clears throat> I rely on my hands, and right now I'm in jeopardy. I have severe carpal tunnel, tunnel syndrome in both hands, and it's becoming incredibly difficult to do the things that I could do without even thinking, um, even just a couple of years ago. And so should, <clears throat> is James 5 appropriate <clears throat> <clears throat> in all circumstances, is that, I mean, we follow through on that, and or are we misinterpreting the application of that? Well, there are different theories about what James 5 is talking about. Um, as Sean alluded to earlier, there, there are people who interpret it from like a cessationist property, which is that James is not talking about physical healing, but he's talking about some sort of a social healing, that as people come into the body of Christ, God desires above all things unity and peace and harmony to exist inside of his community. And so what James is actually discussing is the concept of a structured church in which people are vulnerable and transparent and have intimacy with one another and that there's work towards sanctification and glorification of God. 
there's there is that interpretation. I, I don't think the text itself allows for that to be the only thing in view. Uh, when you when you read the text, it does seem to suggest like it, it seems very clear. You'd have to really do some interesting interpretation uh, in order to exclude the probability that James is talking about physical healings that are dispensed by the church eldership. Now, we were talking earlier about why is it that the apostles and uh, there are certain instances in the Bible where there's a mass outpouring of miracles and then they seem to kind of taper off. And it's a really interesting question and it dovetails pretty nicely into this one. God establishes institutions and he gives power to those institutions and shows he's behind them through the promotion of miracles. So Moses starts instituting the nation of Israel and he starts instituting the idea that there is going to be an office of priest and prophet at the head, he being the prophet and his brother being the priest. And so they perform miracles to demonstrate to the people of Israel that God has ordained what this, this office, essentially. And then it's handed down to Joshua. And lest anyone think, well, you know, it's just, it was just Moses and Aaron that were given those abilities. No one else is going to have them. No, Joshua performs miracles as well as a sign that no, God is behind this office. This is something that God is allowing for. Then later on, you have the office of prophet, uh, distinct from leader, right? Because Moses was also the political leader. And same with Joshua. Now you have a prophet that's not a political leader. He's not a political figure at all. He is merely a spokesperson for God in the person of Elijah. And you have a massive outpouring of miracles. And then once again, he dies and his successor has an outpouring of miracles showing, again, it's not just Elijah. It's this office that's ordained and anointed by God. And then in the New Testament, you have a new office, uh, namely the church, right? So the church age begins and you have offices of authority within the church. And that authority is ordained through the outpouring of miracles. So, yeah, you, you do see, uh, as Sean said, about 16 miracles or so happening in Acts. But you also have to understand the outpouring of miraculous power that was given to the apostles is something that we do not see today. That is true. You don't see people walking around like the Apostle Paul where just his shadow was falling on people and they were being healed, mm -hmm. right? Uh, or like him talking too <clears throat> long in a sermon, which which does happen today, and someone falling asleep, which does happen today, and then that person <laughs> actually dying, uh, like, uh, falling out of the window and dying, and then him raising that person from the dead and then continuing a sermon, <laughs> right? That's not something you see happen today, right? So that, I'm sure that, Scott would like that gift. Yeah, I know. Not that people fall asleep and fall out of windows during his It'll preaching. teach but. them, you know? That's, uh, <laughs> that is how you learn <laughs> not to fall asleep. But I give uh, you just enough of an adrenaline shot to listen <clears> to the rest. But. Right, or, or Paul being struck by a poisonous asp and then just kind of shaking it off and, and not really experiencing any pain, right? That outpouring of miraculous power is something that we don't see today. You see miracles, but you don't see individuals holding that level of power of healing ministry today. And that's because, again, God is establishing a new work, a new office, and he's showing I'm behind it, I'm behind the message, and I'm behind the office. Uh, and that's established. Now, uh, I could get into apostolic succession and stuff like that. I'm not going to. What I will say is that there is an office held by the church. The church is an authority on this earth. There is elders and bishops established within the church. And that's what's established by the apostolic age. Now, in James, what he's saying is you go to these elders, this ordained office by God, if you're sick, and God will work through that office he's established to heal. It doesn't say that he'll heal in every case. It just means if I'm taking that strictly literally, it means that God will choose, his spirit will choose to utilize that office in order to establish his continuing work, continuing 
work throughout the ages, right? So that, that makes sense to me that if God's saying, if I want to perform a miracle in your life, if I want to perform a healing, I still want to work through my church, right? That's something I've established. It's important. I want people to go there. And I think that that is something that we still hold to today. In, in many different denominations, we still hold to a, a literal interpretation of James that we anoint with oil and we mm. pray over people. Mm. But I'm not, other than prosperity, I'm not aware, aware of any church denomination that suggests that every time you do that, God will mm. bend the knee and heal you. It just means that God chooses to work through the office that he, he himself established when so, he wants. So if I were to get prayed for and had faith that, yeah, God could could decide to heal me through this office, mm-hmm. the church, the elders, <clears throat> and he does not, then I should take that as a clear indication that I have, that God has a bigger picture right. for what I'm going through versus, oh, well, maybe there's something wrong with this elder. Maybe right. we switched <laughs> him out or something. Or maybe this oil has yeah. gone a little bit old. and <laughs> Or maybe I have sin or a lack or of faith. I, or I have a lack oh, of yeah, faith or I have helpful. sin in my life yeah. and my relationship with God is off and so on and so forth. Well, thank you for that uh, insight into that issue. Really complex issue, but also... Um, uh, passages that we wrestle with that we think, well, you know, why God, why won't he heal me? I've lost a lot of friends in the last few years and family and, and uh, healing could have happened, but it just didn't. And yeah. so it's a, it's a really good topic for us to meditate on. And, and thank you for those clear answers. <clears throat> Robert Block wants to know if the AI, the big push, the big talks, the push for AI, chat, uh, chat GPT, yeah. and I know you, you've probably got this question, could this possibly be the beast system that will rise when the Antichrist takes power? No. No. <laughs> I say yes, no. <laughs> uh, so essentially when you're looking at the beast in the book of Revelation, yes, we do believe that the beast is a literal person, that the Antichrist is an individual. But when you look at the beast, it's actually more literally his empire, right? There's, there's some sort of an empire that rises out of the sea and it's depicted uh, as a nation, right? As a nation, and the Antichrist is the head of that particular empire or nation, or uh, what, whatever you want to call it, conglomeration of nations. But uh, so what we see is a political force at work. Uh, the Chat GPT, it's an interesting dynamic. I, I did have a conversation with someone. That's why I was laughing. I wasn't laughing at the question. I was just laughing because I was having a conversation with someone that's a little out there. And uh, we were just throwing, because I like talking to people who are a little out there, because I'm a little out there, and it frees me up to have weird conversations. That's why you can sit on the program uh, with me. Yeah, that's right. And uh, we were talking about, is it plausible that in Revelation it talks about the image of the beast uh, actually being given life, right? So you have two beasts in the book of Revelation. You have the Mm -hmm. beast from the sea and the beast from the land. And the beast from the land acts as like a prophet to the beast from the sea. And at one point he takes an image or an icon of the beast from the sea and he gives it life, right? And he animates it and people bow down and worship it. So we we were talking, it's like, wouldn't it be funny if what's in view here is the beast from the land provides some sort of an artificial intelligence? And I brought up the idea of 1984. In 1984, you have pictures of Big Brother all around the country. And in many times the pictures have cameras in it. And so you have an image of the beast, you have an image of the state that's plastered everywhere. And that image has life in it to a certain extent. Well, what if it actually did have like an artificial life within it? That you actually had an image of the state and that image has intelligence 
and therefore it's able to actually kind of like the eye of Sauron, like like spy on every. I, we got a lot of references going on right now. Uh, you know, spy on everybody simultaneously and keep them in in check. I think it would be interesting, uh, but no, it, it in and of itself, it can't be the system of the beast. It could be a facet of it, right? If it developed enough, it could be a facet of his system, but it's not going to be the totality of it. Mm, interesting. Good stuff. Interesting. Very interesting. We've got a, a quite a few uh, questions in, on our YouTube channel. Uh, Mac D wants to know, who did people pray to before Christ was born? They would have still prayed to God proper, Father, Son, and Spirit. I think the mistake that's oftentimes made here is that Jesus didn't exist as a personage until he was born. That would be the idea of us reading into the idea that when you're born, that's when you begin to exist. God was born, therefore, that's when he began to exist. Nothing can be further from the truth. Micah 5.2 is very clear that the one who would come out of Bethlehem, this anointed one, his goings forth, his activities, his conscious will was from the beyond the vanishing point, literally in the Hebrew, from old, from everlasting. The only entity to have a pre-existence before his physical birth would be God the Son. When he adopted human nature, he became flesh, John 1.14 tells us. So we don't say that God the Son became, a new feature was added to his nature. He became flesh. Now understand that when we're getting into all this fancy, you know, hypostatic union and the, uh, um, the interesting dynamics in the nature of the Trinity, now that for eternity one of them is going to have a human nature submitting to the Father as his God, it's a lot to keep track of and stuff that we could probably go on for more than four and a half minutes talking about. But the point being made, Mac, is when we're talking about Jesus beginning to exist, that's a non-starter. He's God, and he shares the unique traits with the Father and Spirit that only apply to God. He's spoken of as eternal, Micah 5.2. He's spoken as creator, Colossians chapter 3, He's spoken and chapter 1. He's spoken of as the source of life in the Gospel of John, many places most prominently in chapters 6 and 10. But on and on it goes. All things the Father has are mine. He's the uh, claims in Mark chapter 16, or not 16, 14, I believe, during his trial, uh, that he was the Son of Man that would be worshipped by all nations in the book of Daniel. This is why we identify Jesus as God, and that was something in John chapter um, 17. When he prays to the Father, he asks to have the glory restored to him that he had with you, speaking to his Father, before the world was. So Jesus is still there. He's sharing glory with the Father and something that the prophet Isaiah says God shares with nobody. So if no, God shares his glory with nobody and he shares it with Jesus, then either God is wrong or Jesus is God. He can share it with himself. He is that by nature. So just keep track of these uh, foundational truths, and I think that these sort of issues won't be confusing. When we talk to God, we're speaking in the full totality of the Trinity to the Father, Son, and Spirit. As far as the mode of prayer, what's most directly modeled for us by Jesus is that through the Spirit, we pray to the Father in the name of the Son. The Father is the direct audience and always has been. But if you want to get uh, into this a little bit more, you can look up the Targums referring to the uh, Memra, the Logos, 
the Metatron, the Jewish sources call him. Uh, Jesus was still very much active in the Old Testament as well. You can look more into that or maybe ask about it tomorrow. Mm. We're uh, short on time, though, so I want to give room for at least one or two more questions. <laughs> yeah, this is <clears throat> this is a good question because it has to do with uh, how we as believers should engage with modern media and storytelling yeah. and art. Yeah. Uh, Michael, uh, Stephen Hughes wants to know, um, <clears throat> there's a TV show called Last of Us, uh, with contradicting worldviews towards Christian worldviews, such as homosexuality and so on, uh, would I be promoting the show and going against my Christian beliefs by watching the show, even if I skip those particular episodes? Uh, yeah, so, gosh, that is not enough time to give you an adequate <laughs> answer. I'm very sorry about this. I'm Stick to the better. first video game. It's a better story anyway. <laughs> I'm going to give you a very short answer. So uh, what art does is it presents the human experience of interaction with the world, and many people who create the high arts today are not Christians. So they are given their perspective of the world, and some of it accords with truth and some of it does not because they don't know God. They're fallen. So when I'm watching something, that's what I'm seeing. When I'm, ent- when I'm enjoying entertainment, I'm seeing the world through the eyes of someone who maybe doesn't believe in God. That doesn't mean I can't enjoy the show, and it doesn't mean that I can't uh, enjoy aspects of it, but it does mean that I'm going to get a worldview and an ethics ethical system that is different than mine. And as long as I know that going in, and I have certain rules about the gratuity shown within particular works of art that I'm going to look at, gratuitous violence, nudity, things like that, uh, the message itself shouldn't be a deterrent, but the, the gratuity might be. So you have to evaluate that in your conscience before God, but art can illuminate a lot of things and benefit you, even if it's made by someone who doesn't agree with your worldview. Well, thanks for the question, and thanks for joining us. Thanks, you for your time. Please join us the same place, same time, tomorrow. God bless you. You've been listening to A Reason for Hope. Thank you again for joining us as we continue our journey through God's Word, one question of the heart at a time. Until we meet again, we would love to connect with you. You can text or email your questions to questionsforhope at gmail.com. You can also find out more about our ministry at calvarychristianfellowship.com. And be sure to join us next time on A Reason for Hope. A Reason for Hope is an outreach ministry of Calvary Christian Fellowship in Tucson, Arizona.